So 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And the second reading is 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 12 to 20. One Corinthians six, twelve to twenty. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Thank you, Henry. It's great to be back to join you guys again after a number of weeks or months away. Um, nice to see you and hear that great singing and those um, crazy kid songs with Sam spinning um, and me getting my morning stretch because of it. Thank you for that. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Paul Hunt. I was locum here for a while. It's great to be back here for this um, series. Um, because of the masks, it's hard to know how a sermon comes across. So. I was thinking maybe if I'm doing well, maybe a thumbs up. And if you think I'm wavering a bit, maybe this. And if you think it's really going badly, just kind of do this and I'll get the idea to either speed up or change tack or something. Um, that would be helpful. A few preliminary comments about this series. Ben's already made a couple of comments about the different steps we're going to do. I'm doing kind of a more general, general introduction about sex and identity from Scripture. Um, 
But I might, and then um, we've got Jesus sexual ethic and gender roles in the church and transgenderism with Jeff Lynn. The idea of questions after is because I think these things are very complex and trying to condense it into a sermon that lasts 20 minutes or so is a bit of a challenge. You may also have questions. I may say, look, that's a question for, for later or for, I'll just defer any difficult questions to Ben. Um, but I realise this is a very complex area. So um, it, it means that there'll be some nuances, I guess, that um, I'll be happy to explain if you've got other questions. But on a pastoral note, I might, um, I might say that I recognise that these issues of around sex, sexuality, gender, gender identity, um, roles we have in the church and, and um, those kind of things, they are very personal and can be very personal for you as well as for friends or colleagues you work with or study with. Um, they may be part of your own personal struggle or those who struggle around you. So um, I just want to recognise that that's, that means that this series can be, could be quite challenging. And if it is, I think spend time pondering it yourself and reflecting on God's word in prayer as well, but also talk with a fellow Christian whom you trust if it raises difficult issues for your issues that I guess might re-raise issues for you that you thought you'd had dealt with. But it's worth asking why we're we talking about these kind of issues. It's, um, you know, I, I remember once being said when I was younger that you don't talk about sex, politics and religion. Well, I've worked out actually that people now talk about um, politics, certainly, um, and religion, uh, sorry, and sex, but not religion, funnily enough, because I think sex, while it maybe not talked about a lot, it's certainly much more prevalent in discussion in, um, on the radio, uh, on our uh, screens, um, and around universities and that kind of thing. It's really out there. So it's important for us as a church to be able to engage with our, our culture um, and ourselves as well as we work through what... Um, as our society does throw up, I think, new questions for us that we haven't necessarily considered on transgenderism, for example. That wasn't one that I went to college thinking about, um, but it's one that we need to think about now. Um, we also, it's helpful to discuss it amongst ourselves as believers so we can talk about the issues with those who aren't yet Christian because they, I think, are one of the biggest barriers about coming to church now is the church's view on sex and sexual matters. At least the the barrier is perceived, I think, a perceived view rather than an accurate view. It's a stereotype of what Christians believe on these matters. Uh, but it is conflicted as well because I recognise that amongst Christians there are differences and sometimes quite strong differences about why, why we should think this through and apply scriptural principles to our lives. We also live, of course, in a sex-saturated society. Um, Try and find a show that, uh, that on a streaming channel of some sort that doesn't involve sexual activity. It's pretty hard, unless it's a kid's thing, uh, pretty hard to find one, isn't it? If it's PG-rated, maybe not. After that, pretty much anything goes. Um, I kind of try and do the fast-forward thing. It doesn't always work very well. Um, but let me say, people also think, I think this view is held by many outside the church, that the Bible is really outdated the issues that we have now weren't issues when the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. The reality is, if you look at places like the early church and the setting of the New Testament, Corinth, Ephesus, the Roman practices, they were um, sexually permissive societies, very similar to ours, where pretty much anything went. Um, without, I think I might say, some of our more um, modern limits on what is right and wrong, as far as power relationships go, 
So the New Testament particularly was engaged with the pagan world in which it lived and was written into that sex-saturated society that's similar to ours. So don't think that our Bible doesn't address contemporary issues. I believe it does. So that's all introduction. Let me pray as we continue on. Lord, we do ask as we enter into thinking about your word, your world and ourselves as your believers and followers in your world, as you look at pondering uh, where sex and sexuality, where our thinking about that intersects with the, the word of God and the world in which we live, we do pray you would give us wisdom to understand both what your purpose is for us as well as wisdom to interact with those around us, friends and family members, others for whom these are deeply troubling or difficult issues. Uh, Lord, too, for us as believers, we're aware that this might raise for us uh, issues of the past or the present. Give us a sense of peace and settledness, uh, love for each other and care for each other in these difficult and challenging areas, that we would see your plan for us, rejoice in it, and be encouraged by it and encourage each other in it as we care for each other uh, in we, as we talk about these things. So we ask your blessing upon us, uh, your wisdom by your spirit, insight and godliness and holiness. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. What do you think of when you, as you finish this sentence? I am a... dot, dot, dot. Who are you? What do you think of when you finish that sentence? How do you define yourself? How do you think of yourself? So, you know, I am a white, heterosexual, northern suburbs bred, living in the eastern suburbs, slightly aged, slightly balding, or a little bit, fair bit balding, married, father, with a dog. Is that my identity? Is that who I am? I am this. And that is certainly true. I'm all those things. They're all part of my life. They're all part of my relationships. They're all part of my thinking. Um, you know, some of them are not so important. Uh, owning a dog's great. Um, but it's not kind of my identity. But, you know, if you said, are you, what are you? I said, oh, I'm a dog owner, that kind of thing. Yeah, that might come up. But of course, there's much more than that, or much more foundationally than that. I am a Christian, a believer in Jesus. Now, I think there are, there are lots of things we can say about how the Bible defines who we are. We heard about that in the Catechism. You know, God created us for his glory, that kind of thing. There's a very broad kind of thing. Then you narrow it down a bit more, I guess, to our Christian identity. And broadly speaking, I think we are shaped and formed by one of my call these Bible words of love, grace and truth. You could possibly throw in faith there, but I'm thinking of the Godward direction to us that shapes who we are. We're shaped by God's love in Christ. We've received and continue to receive his grace. And because Christ comes full of grace and truth, as we engage with Jesus as Christians, that shapes who we are and how we should think of ourselves. We should think of ourselves um, in a sense fundamentally rather than those kind of descriptors of me that are true but are not in the end foundational we should think of ourselves as shaped by god's love god's grace and god's truth particularly seen in jesus you know, we're, we're fundamentally loved because jesus loves us and came to give his life for us to me that should be 
knowing the love of God is more foundational than, in a sense, any other descriptor I might have of myself. It's a kind of a character, value, uh, core, if you get my meaning. Um, I constantly receive God's grace, and that shapes both my relationships, I hope and pray. But because I know of that grace, I can feel confident in who I am. Not in who I am as a father, although that might be important, or as a husband, or um, whatever else I might see uh, be defined by. Um, But because of God's grace to me continues to shape and ground me, um, I can be more confident than in my in what God has done and what God is doing, that in my adequacies or inadequacies in those other descriptors. And shaped by the truth, the truth about ourselves, we live in a broken world, we are affected by that brokenness, but ultimately Christ's truth and what he's done in in the cross is core to who I am as a person. Um, I think those three contours of love, grace and truth, I believe, um, particularly if our world could understand what they mean and what they mean for us as well, they, I think, will help shape what I might call a deep-seated self-image, which is shaped by God. Uh, I'm aware that our world wants to define people and we want to define ourselves as well as part of that, But it's often, I think, um, the challenge of that is it brings you to the limits of your own person. That is that self-image within our world or self-esteem is generated from within. I think for the Christian, it's actually generated from without. So my self-image is quite significantly differently um, produced, if I put it that way. And I think those um, love, grace and truth develop um, resilience, assist in good friendships and work relationships and even successful marriages. Love, grace and truth can assist us in healthier interactions with those whom we love, live, work, teach and affect the sort of community and society we build. That is, who we are as in Christ, who we are as believers, can actually affect and should affect, have this ripple effect of circles outside of us. It's not just about us. There's an other person centeredness inherent in the way God has shaped us. Now, I can say that, but I'm, I must say that while we might believe um, this new creation that was talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, there is still, in practice, often an unsettledness as we grow to understand who we are. Because our sense of who we are can be found on being a mother or a father, a wife or a husband, um, of our work or the value that it brings, the capacity, whether we're healthy or fit, whether we're hitting our goals at the gym or not, those things can maybe have more of a definition of who we are than they should. And if we don't meet those particular markers that we, we would like to, whether it's being married or some people want to be single, some people struggle with the issues of life um, and, and feel trapped by them, for the Christian, I guess, the goal is to have God continue to fill up that potential emptiness to keep on being shaped by who we are as Christ's followers and have that be the identity that drives us. The verses in what 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Interesting, verse 15 says, And Jesus died for all, so those who live might live no longer for themselves. And I think that's our world's priority. 
So our identity is actually about being other person-centred, interestingly. And in the other person-centredness, we find life. Our world says, your identity, defined by the world, I might say, has to almost come from within as well. And it's all about you, I reckon. It's one of the predominant uh, cultural shifts over the last generation or so, particularly um, post-post-war generation, is it's actually not about the community anymore, which was the major and dominant thing, serving the community or your country if you went to war, but yourself. We live in, swim in that now. That's, our, that's, our, that's the water we swim in as fish. It's about you. It's about your fulfilment and your, um, who you are. That's, that's the dominant, one of the dominant narratives at least. But the Christian sense of identity is actually that by being transformed by Christ, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died, that is Jesus, and was raised for them. So our focus is actually on serving Jesus, who of course asks us to serve others. Then it says we no longer view ourselves from a human point of view. So this turns, turns out who we are on its head. We don't, we don't see Jesus in that way any longer. He's not just a human figure. He's the divine son of God who came to die and save us. So, this is, the trend, this is the verse, verse 17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything's become new. This creation image, this narrative of the old has gone, the new has come in Christ. So it places our identity outside of ourselves. It places our identity in Christ. The new creation we are is not in our sexual orientation i might say or our practice whether heterosexual homosexual bi gay white black australian whether a particular career single or married they are not the main sense of identity for the believer they may be part of the way you do think of yourself and that's actually okay some of that may indeed be your sense of identity but for the christian it shouldn't be the dominant one because the identity of being in Christ and serving Christ, I might say in the end, is an eternal one. It's supposed to be freeing, not restrictive, foundational, not shallow, and eternal, not transient. This is very different to the way these other descriptors are. They are short-term. If you're married, eventually one of you will die. You're no longer married. Your status changes. Your work can change, uh, all sorts of situations can change. And that's part of life, that's not a negative, it's just part of life. I mean, losing a spouse might be negative. Um, sorry, just saying I think it's, I would feel differently if Leanne wasn't around. Um, careful what we say um, as you ad-lib. Um, but I think that struck me as more as I thought, thought about this is that our identity in Jesus being in Christ and being free by being in him is an eternal identity. It's very different to anything else because both it's shaping who we are now and continuing to do that as God does his work in us by his Holy Spirit, but it will be how we are in eternity. In a sense, the journey has begun now. And that sense of eternity, that sense of our identity being already, in a sense, established and settled because of what Christ has done and growing into that as we continue towards heaven, will continue on. We'll still be in Christ on the other side of our death or when Christ returns. So what that should do too, I think, is help us as we travel through this sometimes crazy world with its um, mixed, and, mixed and confused idea of who we are, including our sexual identity, 
that should give us a rock-solid thing to be established on and should stabilise us through all of our struggles, which are real and genuine in this world. That's one of those truths you should hold on to that is true, dare I say it, being a believer in Jesus, who God has brought to himself, that is true whether you feel it or not. And I sometimes think, I know these truths, and need to be reminded of them, I kind of dip back in them and go, oh, that's right, I've got an eternal future ahead of me that is already settled in Christ. That's where my, in a sense, my, that's who I am, a child of God heading towards eternity. That's who I am. So I might say there, I would say our world has a lot of confusion around identity and sexual identity in particular at the moment. And there seems to be, and we're told, lots of struggles with mental illness um, and uh, around sexual fluidity and gender. Um, there's lots of pain and difficulty. And I want to downplay that. And we know uh, of people for whom this is a significantly deep and troubling issue. Now, some of that is just what I think is a normal process of kind of growing up and understanding yourself. Who am I? And that's normal for a child and a teenager and an adult as well. Uh, but I think some of the differences are, and this won't be a surprise to you, and I can't deal with all this right now, but I'll certainly try to deal with some of these things, I guess, in a way. Um, but, you know, there's the fluid gender issue. Um, children quite young now are being asked which gender do they prefer. Not a question that was asked um, even 10 years ago, to be frank. In the last few years, really, it's now flipped where children are being asked to define themselves and, and days at school are celebrating a whole range of diverse options that were never even considered as realistic options in the past. Um, and our Western world, I might say at the moment, uh, seems to be preoccupied with this. Now, recognise that gender, sexual identity and sexual activity are different and can be different in our world. Um, uh, you know, biblically speaking, you can be heterosexual but not active sexually. So there's a distinction there between your sexual orientation, if we put it that way, and your sexual activity. Um, and there can be a Christian who thinks of themselves as homosexual, for example, like someone who's heterosexual, who would choose to be celibate um, and not be sexually active because that's the godly choice. So a single heterosexual person will say, well, um, if marriage is the place for sexual activity, I will choose as, a, as an action of my godliness and holiness to not engage in sexual activity. That's true for, I think, any self-defined gender. And because, uh, as you probably guess where I'm heading with this, because Christian identity trumps everything else, Christian identity and what, the, what follows from that uh, is the overarching um, structure that affects every other decision we make about ourselves, no matter how we define ourselves. Some of those definitions are fine and part of our, our growth, some are part of our um, just who we are as individuals, and some will actually be a mix of godly or ungodly. And we have to work out how much those other things, how we think of ourselves, have actually um, compromised with our world's understanding of what that means, of what that is. So Mark, if I get us to throw up the 1 Corinthians 6 um, passage on the screen for us um, as I just um, look at this. So the Corinthian church was in a very sexually permissive culture um, and as a, a number of places were in the pagan world, um, the sexual behaviour particularly was often linked with temple 
prostitution, they call it. So because a lot of the gods were gods of, you know, war or sexuality or, or productivity, would you believe that people would go and have sex with a temple prostitute, the men, I might say, um, we are a temple prostitute, somehow it was a spiritual activity. Get that? I'm going off to pray. Well, that means something different. Um, because in doing, in kind of, you're supposed to kind of um, get the gods sexually excited and so they would um, help produce more crops and help the animals be more productive and less that kind of way. So I think that's my understanding. Part of this context here for um, this passage is probably with that idea, because prostitution is mentioned, that idea mentioned particularly, not just that, but that particularly. And within the Corinthian community, there was this idea, well, the, I mean, the, the city, the town, the culture they lived in, um, and so possibly affected by, the church affected by it, as we can all be affected by our culture. There was this idea that, well, you can do whatever you like, the body's not that important, doesn't really matter, does it? You know, enjoying yourself, having fun, if it feels right, do it. I said the Corinthian, the New Testament wasn't much different to our culture today. So what the Apostle is doing here is quoting some of their own quotes. Or, um, I have the right to do anything. I can do whatever I like. But not everything's beneficial. Um, I have the right to, to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's, the response is, our self-control is part of that reflection of being a believer. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and he says, God will destroy both. In other words, keep them in perspective. Then he goes on to, we've moved from food now to the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord, interestingly, for the body. Actually, God made us physical beings. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that God gives us, including food, sexual activity, both in the right context, in the right way, are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed. There are parts of Scripture that actually think that sexual activity is just supposed to be fun, I might say. So get this kind of negative image that Christians have about sexual activity. It's not there in the Bible. It might have been said in churches in the past because we're too afraid to talk about it, but probably not so much now. Next um, verses, please, Mark. Then... What, uh, we're, what we're reminded of here is, again, this is our foundation, foundational identity, okay? By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Get that resurrection idea? So we're united with Christ in his death and also in his resurrection. And then he says, do you not know that our, your bodies are members of Christ himself? And this might have been a new thing for the Corinthians, I suspect it is for us. Who we are are members of Christ, um, and we are... Our bodies are actually kind of part, if I put it this way, part of Jesus, part of Jesus' body. So we're not actually separate from Christ. We are deeply connected to Christ. So what we do with our bodies um, has an effect on our relationship with Christ. We're not, um, what we do with our bodies, whether it's food, alcohol, sex, uh, everything we do, has a connection to Christ. Then he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? So particularly maybe with the spiritual overlay, but nevertheless still true. Obviously it was a practice that they thought was possible, they thought was okay. It's just sex, isn't it? What's the big deal? It's just a physical activity that gives you some pleasure for a period of time. And boy, is that like our world. Never, the scripture says. 
why would you do such a thing? Next, next section, please. Right. Do you not know that those who unite themselves with a prostitute are one with her in body? Um, for it is said, the two will become one. Jesus quotes this, and it's also from Genesis. But whoever's united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you see, this is a deeply spiritual activity, this sexual activity you're going to be involved in. If you're going to be involved in it, that means you're kind of uniting Jesus, he says. So flee from sexual immorality. All, and this is an interesting verse too, I think, that people forget. Apparently, is, is all sin the same? Well, one way, yes, in that all sin grieves God and can bring us into judgment. But in other ways, not. Sin, different sins have different consequences. I would say from, from this one verse here and from this context, um, sexual behaviour is probably the one sin that is different to any other. I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So there's a, and I think the reality of both experience and um, relationships tells us that this is so true. Um, let's keep, God, we'll continue on, Mark, thank you, in these last couple of verses. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. So the individualism and what I might call the selfish individualism of our world that says it's all about you. What you do with your body, that's okay. It's entirely up to you. For the Christian, the answer is that's not the case at all. You are not your own, actually. You don't have the right to do whatever you want and you can't just do what you feel like. Now, you kind of know that, and you know that in terms of the, if you've got children, the way you try and bring your children up. You know this about your relationships at work. You can't just do what you want. There are relationships here. For the Christian, it's got to do a lot with who we are. We are in Christ. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. There's a sacrifice and ransom that Christ has done for us on the cross. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Or glorify God with your bodies is another translation. Now, in this, in this passage, this passage, which I think is one of the, uh, it's got a lot in it. It's very deeply, uh, both philosophical, it's countercultural, it is very challenging. The intention of sexual behaviour here, which is both goes back to Genesis um, and Jesus referring to this in the Gospels as well, is unity. Procreation, yes, and enjoyment, yes, as I mentioned, but it's relational, emotional and spiritual unity between a man and a woman. Our culture has separated and divided that unifying uh, purpose from sexual behaviour. Sexual behaviour is predominantly now individual, my personal sexual needs being met in whatever context you want, as long as, it doesn't, as, long as it's consenting, it's fine. Um, it's shifted the dial from intimacy and um, unity to, I believe, often pleasure as its main object. And not that, as I say, shouldn't it, not, not that it shouldn't be pleasurable, but uh, individual pleasure is not actually the focus of scriptural unity. It's part of it, uh, sorry, but, sorry uh, scriptural sex, sexual activity. Um, it's unity as its predominant goal, along with procreation as an outcome. Um, so the lifelong bond that sexual intimacy is supposed to produce has been divided by our culture. And people do say it's just sex, like what's the big deal? Um, I know when I was uh, teaching sex ed at school um, with year nines, which was always interesting, 
Um, uh, it's a little bit sad because in the end, much of the program is really about, I mean, the biology stuff had been done by then. It was all about kind of relationships and that kind of thing. But most of it really was about protecting yourself from sexually transmitted infections and from unwanted pregnancies. That was really kind of the two main goals. And both of those are self-focused, don't they? They're not wrong things. I think they're sensible, and I think there's a harm minimization kind of thinking behind that, and I actually think that's okay. But it's kind of sad that that's really, that's the predominant message by the end of it. Protect yourself, look after yourself, which of course is not, I mean, it's not the goal, is it, of sexual activity? Not in the Christian context. It should be joyful, encouraged, positive, pleasurable, all those things, in a context that joins two people together, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And while our world, I think, has this kind of strange, conflicted idea about this, because it says, in some ways, that believes that's true, in rom-coms and other things you see that, uh, other things we might hear, it wants that, but at the same time it says it's about individualism and meeting my own personal needs, they're the priority. And I don't think the two are going to work so well. Uh, and I think it drives insecurity. My other experience at school was um, as a chaplain, after one particularly um, party that happened, a number of uh, girls, teenagers, came to me and talked about what had happened at the party and how they had felt and were um, sexually violated by some of the boys that were there. Lots of alcohol, some drugs, I think, really got out of hand. Now, um, that's sadly too predominant in our culture in all sorts of ways. But it was interesting, if it's just sex, why were they so overwrought? And they weren't, I don't think they were virgins, so not, not, not that it matters, I might say, but how do I talk about this in a way that's helpful? For them, the sense of being used and abused was very real. In other words, it's not just sex. There is a deep spiritual and emotional bond that occurs, no matter how our world wants to kind of pretend not, and I think for men particularly that's less of an issue than it is for women, and interesting discussion about why that's the case. But it has, um, how we think of ourselves sexually and how we act sexually is, um, and I realise this is on to our sexual activity rather than just sexual identity, um, but it isn't just sex, because if it, if it was just sex, then you could sleep with anybody you wanted and it wouldn't matter. That is, you know, if someone said, well, can I sleep with your wife? I'd say no. I mean, our culture kind of thinks that's okay, as long as you don't know the person's friend, like you're not friends with them. It's weird, isn't it? You can commit adultery so long as people don't find out, or you can, uh, it's okay if someone has an affair, as long as it's not within your circle. I'm not saying Christians think this, but our world thinks that. But actually, we don't, the world doesn't think that. In reality, they go, no, you can't sleep with my wife or my husband. I don't want you to do that, because it breaks something fundamental in our relationship. Not everybody thinks that way, but our society does actually think that way. And it's got this funny idea, it's all about individualism and individual needs. Like, it's all about conflicted. So let me um, finish uh, by summarising. Um, sexual sin is different. Our sexual activity is important. How we think of ourselves sexually as an identity, as we move on to that, as Christians, um, should be trumped by our identity in Christ. It certainly has implications for our um, behaviour, yes, and I guess people would know what that means. Um, 
But the challenge for us, I think, is to make sure that our other identities are secondary and not primary to being in Christ. That sex should be unifying and not just an individual pursuit of pleasure, which pushes back against our world, even though our world, I think, wants what the Christian believes. Um, and I think the other thing, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this as well, but is that it's actually a desire for holiness. If we are in Christ, we honour him with our bodies in every facet of our lives, in our serving of others, in our loving people, and a desire to live um, ethically and Christianly with our sexual orientation or our sex, uh, sexual expression. There are struggles, yes, and there will be struggles in this area, and there are. I don't want to underestimate those or downplay them. But let me leave you with the encouragement that we have an eternal and should have an eternal perspective on who we are in Christ. And that will actually be much firmer than our world's definition of ourselves. Amen.